A Bombardier Q400 falls out of the sky over Buffalo, New York, just miles from the airport. Why did this fully functioning aircraft plunge out of the sky, killing everyone on board and one on the ground back in 2009? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And today we are covering... Continental Airlines Flight 3407, also known as... Colgan Air. Flight 3407. Colgan Air was operating this flight on behalf of Continental. The tickets were sold as Continental tickets. Express. Continental Express tickets. Colgan Air is a regional operator, so they don't operate any airplanes under their own name. They only operate for major carriers, but they allow major carriers to have smaller operations. And they still run, like, Delta Express and United Express, right? Yes, correct. All of the major airlines still have their own little regional carriers that are operated by separate carriers in different regions of the country. This flight took place on February 12th of 2009. It was a Bombardier DHC-8-402, or a Dash 8, or now a Q400, as it's known. De Havilland bought it from... Bombardier recently, and now it's known as the Q400. It's a high-wing twin turboprop. High-wing means that the wing is above the cabin, rather than below, like most airplanes. And it's a twin turboprop, so it has two giant prop propeller-driven air engines on the wings. And we have a couple pictures of this plane posted on our website. The flight was scheduled from Newark to Buffalo in New York. It had 45 passengers and 4 crew for a total of 49. The captain was Marvin Renslow, who was 47. He was from Florida. He had 3,379 hours total, with 111 as captain on the Q400, and he required glasses. Rebecca Lynn Shaw was 24, and she was from Washington. She had 2,244 hours, with 774 turbine, which included hours on the Q400, but she was hired in January of 2008. So only just over a year before this, she was the first officer. She did not require glasses. The flight departed Newark at 9.18 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it was scheduled for 53 minutes. That is a short, short flight. It is a short flight. Barely enough time to get up, get to cruise, and get back down. During climb, the FDR showed that propeller and airframe de-ice were turned on. Pitot de-ice was already on from their pre-departure check. Airframe de-ice uses bleed air, which is compressed air from the engines, to inflate big black rubber boots to break up accumulated ice on the wings and vertical stabilizer, as well as the horizontal stabilizer leading edges. So they literally use compressed air to just break up the ice and make it fly away from the airplane, basically. Do they still use those nowadays? Yeah, absolutely. They still do. A lot of airplanes do, actually. If it's not heat, then it's they break it up using boots. For some reason, I thought that they stopped using them, but I might be getting... They might have started using them to break up ice. That might be what I'm thinking of. Probably. Yeah, they still absolutely actively use them still today. Propeller de-ice systems include electrical heating elements on the leading edge of each blade to remove ice that's accumulated. 
The windshields on the pilot and co-pilot side, as well as the pilot side windows, all have electrical heating elements sealed into the lamination of the windows and are set at a predetermined temperature to prevent ice and mist from building up at all. Why can't we have those in cars? I Can know. we talk about it? It would be so much more We kind of have them in the rear windows of cars. It's the same kind of like copper elements do that. So whenever you're sitting in a cockpit, you can see the copper? If you pay very close attention. So there's usually like a little band of them down in one corner you can see pretty clearly. But then you'd have to look pretty close to see the rest of them. They're really like tiny fiber so, wires. So let's get the really tiny fiber wires in our cars. Rant ended. The flight was to cruise at 16,000 feet, and they did so. On descent, air traffic control told the crew to expect an ILS approach, or instrument landing system approach, to runway 23. An instrument landing system uses a series of frequencies and heading bugs put into the autopilot to allow the airplane to automatically follow the glide slope to the runway. A glide slope to the runway is typically about three degrees of pitch down to the runway, all the way to touchdown at most airports. And runway 23, I guess we might as well explain runways. So runways uh, all have a number and it's all based generally on the heading of the runway. So the heading is in a 360 degree circle, 360 or zero being north, magnetic north, and you know 90 being dead east, 180 being dead south, 270 being dead west. So 2-3 means that the airplane would be heading generally west-southwest. At 230 d- degrees. At 230 degrees. So you just remove the zero in order to get the runway number from the heading. Correct. So, and if there is an L or an R or a C next to that... Left, right, or center. Correct. So that means there's more than one runway that goes the same direction at the airport. In parallel. Right. So they were heading generally southwest to land on runway 23. At 10.15 p.m., the captain requested 5 degrees flap. ATC instructed the flight to turn to a heading of 260 and maintain 2300 feet until established on the localizer approach path. At 10.16 p.m., three miles from the outer marker of the approach, so there's an outer, middle, and an inner marker on the approach. They're basically check marks along the way. At three miles from the outer marker, the furthest marker on the approach, the captain reduced power to nearly flight idle. Torque thrust values were at minimum, so essentially there was no thrust being produced by the engines. The airplane was essentially coasting or gliding through the air in order to slow down. The approach controller instructed 3407 to contact Buffalo Control Tower. The first officer acknowledged that would be the last time that the flight made contact with air traffic control. Dun, dun, dun. The landing gear was extended. Speed was 145 knots at that time. Autopilot adjusted the pitch trim up, and an ice-detected message was displayed on the engine display in the cockpit. About the same time, the captain called for flaps 15 degrees and the before-landing checklist. Okay, hold up. Yep. Did they just completely ignore that icing warning? So they were basically already doing everything they could to prevent icing. All of their de-ice systems were already on. The ice message really couldn't, doesn't mean much to them. And when I read about this and the FDR data, it turns out that the 
ice detected message was going on and off a few times during the flight. Oh, okay. So, so this they wasn't weren't... the first time they had seen it, and that's why they had also activated their de-ice equipment. So, so it was already on, but prominently it came on at this point on their approach, which is a critical point of flight. So they weren't worried about any ice buildup on their wings or anything? I mean, as a pilot, of course, you're worried about it, but if you have all your DI systems on, there's not a whole lot else you can do. When the captain called for the 15 degrees of flap, 10 degrees was selected, as it has to be incremental. So 10 degrees was selected before the 15. The airspeed was 135 knots at the time. At 10.16 and 27 seconds... The stick shaker activates to indicate an impending wing aerodynamic stall. So the stick shaker is a very loud, very violent... Tactile. Tactile shake of the control surface that you hold on to when controlling pitch and roll of the airplane. It literally violently shakes in order to tell the pilots that the airplane is going into a stall. So before you go on, and I'm sure you'll get to this... Why was the plane stalling? We will get into that. And that's later? Yes. Okay. Yes. Then I shall wait with my question. Yep. Simultaneously, an autopilot disconnect horn is heard, and it lasted till the end of the CVR recording. The airplane was at 131 knots when the autopilot disengaged. Less than a half second later, the control column was moved to the aft position, or nose up, and the throttles were advanced to 70 degrees a second later. So they were they were advanced to almost full throttle. Why? <laughs> so, if you know anything about aerodynamics or about how planes work when they stall, if you point the nose up, it's going to make the stalling worse. And you turn into a giant paperweight. Yep. And, uh, okay, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, but... It's stupid that they would pull up if they were experienced pilots. Yep, that is generally correct. The engine increased, the engine increased to 75% torque. While engine power was increasing, the airplane pitched up and rolled left to 45 degrees, left wing down, and then rolled right. As the airplane rolled back through wings level, the stick pusher activated and flaps were set to zero at 10, 16, and 34 seconds. The stick pusher applies nose down on the control columns automatically when it knows the airplane is in a stall to decrease the angle of attack. We'll get deeper into angle of attack later, but this is to bring the airplane out of a stall, much like we were just talking about, by pointing the nose down. Gaining airspeed so that you can get lift on the wings. Right. At 10.16 and 37 seconds, the first officer informs the captain that she put the flaps up. Flaps moved about one second later. Speed was about 100 knots at this point, which is about too slow for this airplane to fly. The airplane then rolled to 105 degrees wing right wing down. Oh my goodness. Before it began rolling back to left, and the stick pusher activates a second time while the airplane was nearly level. I get anxiety at, like, 60 degrees. Well, yeah, and in most airliners, they don't go past about 30, 35. 
They're usually set 25, 30 for most turns. The only time we went to like 45 or 60 degrees was in your dad's dinky plane. Yeah, it's when you're learning to maneuver an actual airplane, you know, a small airplane at maneuverable speeds. The aircraft again rolled 35 degrees left before rolling back to the right. So now we've done several rolls left and right pretty violently. Were they trying to get the plane back level? Is that why they kept that's why it kept going left and right, left and right? Yes, and part of it is that when you go into a stall, especially a, an aerodynamic wing stall, it isn't the whole plane that stalls sometimes, it's only one wing over the other. So one is gaining lift while the other one is losing it and it puts the airplane into a roll on its own. Because one wing has lift and the other doesn't. Right. Well, I get that, but then why, how is it that it kept switching back and forth? It's very difficult to control an airplane when it's in a stall. Yeah, but if one if one wing already has lift, how does the other wing gain lift so you switch the other side? You have to increase airspeed. But in other words, by decreasing. falling. Right, by falling. Oh. The airplane wasn't so falling. So just by dropping time. out of the air, it kept going back and forth. The airplane wasn't falling the whole time. First officer then asked if she should put the gear up, and the captain stated, gear up, followed by an expletive. The airplane then pitched to 25 degrees nose down and rolled to the right 100 degrees right wing down. At 10, 16, and 50 seconds, the stick pusher activated a third time. At 10, 16, and 54 seconds, only 27 seconds after the initial stick shaker activated, the airplane impacted a single-family home and two cars five miles short of the airport, and a post-crash fire ensued. All 49 people on board perished, as well as one in the house, for a total of 50. All the fire crews arrived promptly, but fires continued to burn around the gas lines in the house. The natural gas company shut off gas to the two surrounding houses, but could not shut off the gas to the affected house because the valve was in the fire area. The gas company instructed the fire crews to retreat as well as all rescue and police and the decision was made to shut off the gas for the whole area including 50 homes. Now mind you, this is in the middle of February in Buffalo. I'd still rather have that happen than my house explode. Yeah, don't get me wrong, I would rather that happen than my house explode, but then in the middle of the night your house is very, very cold. There's a lot of blankets. You can go to the fire to warm up. Yeah, make an actual fire and warm yourself up by that fire. Yep. We have a video up on our website. It is a animated simulation of how the crash occurred, and we're going to watch that now, and you should too. Please hold for the elevator music. And the last thing that was heard on the CVR was the first officer screaming. Uh, so we just watched that video, right? It's uh, the NTSB simulation of what happened. It's so much different speaking about it than it is actually saying what happened. Starts to put into perspective what 27 seconds actually looks like. Which is basically nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Like, there is no way for them to have recovered when they didn't realize, clearly when they didn't know what they were doing. So then we get into the investigation into what happened and why this happened, what occurred. The investigation, of course, went straight into weather first. 
Weather conditions at the at Buffalo at the time of the crash were winds at 15 knots, gusting to 22 knots. So it's about 30 miles an hour gust. So it's a decent amount of wind. Coming from 240, which means that it would have been heading at their nose if they were going 240 degrees. So that's extra lift under the wings if they used the wind properly. With a visibility of 3 miles in light snow and mist. With few clouds at 1,100 feet above ground, broken at 2,100 feet, and overcast at 2,700 feet with an outside temp of 1 degree Celsius and a dew point of negative 1 degree Celsius. So dew point and nominal are actually at very, very close together. So that means there is definitely moisture in the air. Numerous pilots had reported using pilot reports or PIREPs that there was icing in the area in the previous few hours leading up to this crash. And after the crash, a survey was done of several other aircraft in the area around the same time with the pilots. They, several of them reported that there was light to moderate icing. And one of them said that once they landed, they looked at their propeller spinner. That's the cone that goes over the propellers right in front, the little pointy bit. That there was two to three inches of ice on the propeller spinner. Holy crap. But they had spent ten minutes in icing conditions. So that means that it built up over quite a bit of time. It wasn't a super fast thing. It wasn't unmanageable for them. So the CVR became a really, really big part of this investigation because the cockpit voice recorder really revealed what was going on in the cockpit during this time. And the flight was short enough that it actually recorded the whole thing. Prior to departure, the flight crew was heard having a discussion about the first officer not feeling well. First officer said, I'm ready to be in the hotel room captain said, I feel bad for you. First officer said, this is one of those times that if I felt like this when I was at home, there's no way I would have come all the way out here. First officer also said, if I call in sick now, I've got to put myself in a hotel until I feel better. We'll see how it feels flying. If the pressure's just too much, I could always call in tomorrow. At least I'm in a hotel on the company's buck, but we'll see. I'm pretty tough. That's a great idea. I'm not feeling 100% and I'm in charge of this aircraft, but you know, I don't want to pay to rest, so I'm going to work anyway, which I've been a person, right, that's gone into work when they were sick. That probably wasn't the best idea, but I... But that's I, different when you sit at a desk versus when you're flying an airplane. When you're in charge of people's lives, basically. Right. So if you're not feeling great, don't go in. Don't fly a plane. Right. And the problem is that she lived in Washington, and this is all the way over in New York. This is on the opposite coast, so she couldn't just easily go home. The crew had discussions unrelated to flight for most of the crew's flight. However, this isn't a problem. They're allowed to do that about 10,000 feet. During the initial descent, the flight crews heard yawning several times. Both of them. That's a great sign. Yeah. Shortly, shortly after descending below 10,000 feet, the captain is heard asking the first officer about the pressure in her ears, asking how her cold is going, basically. But below 10,000 feet, they're required to have a sterile cockpit, even at that time. And this was only 10 years ago, but sterile cockpits have been around for a long time. Below 10,000 feet, you're not supposed to talk about anything other than the operation of the aircraft, and that's because it's a critical point of flight. And even before they take off. Because that's also a critical point in flight. Correct. Below 10,000 feet, whether it's taking off or landing. At 10.10 10 p.m., the first officer asked the captain if ice had been accumulating on the windshield. 
The captain replies that ice was present on his windshield and asks if she had ice as well. First officer said, lots of ice. Captain said, that's the most I've seen. Most ice I've seen on the leading edge in a long time. In a while, I should say. Ten seconds later, the flight crew begins discussion unrelated to the flight again. First officer discloses in recording that she had little to no icing experience before working for Colgan Air. She'd only been with Colgan Air for about a year. What? So she didn't have any idea what she was doing in icing conditions? So she did, but she never really encountered them. She's never had to deal with icing. Basically, in the recording, she said that within her on her first day of operations at Colgan Air, she had gotten more experience dealing with icing and de-icing in that one day than she'd ever done prior to that in her flying life. That's comforting. Yep. While the stall was occurring and the aircraft was violently rolling back and forth, the captain was heard grunting. The captain was heard saying, we're down, and then a thump as the CVR ended. Other than the scream. Other than the scream. Proper procedure during this time was to turn the ref speed switch to increase, um, and this was to be done before entering icing conditions or upon initial detection of icing. The This was done on the accident aircraft, and what this did is it raised the position of the low speed cue. Um, there's a little red and black indicator on the velocimeter. Did I say that right? Yes. It's basically um, the speed indicator. Your speedometer like you'd have in your car. Yeah. It's a speedometer like a rolling tape on the side of a digital display in the air. Yeah, and there's a little black and red indicator that shows when it's too slow. And so what this did is it raised that by um, 15 knots. This would make it so the plane would have the same performance margins relative to stall speed as long as the landing airspeeds were increased. So to remain above the stall warning threshold. Now, what is a stall? A lot of you might be asking. So, can can I answer? Because I know the answer. I'm really excited. We'll let you have the brief answer, but then we've got a nice detail. Yeah, so one. for those of you who don't understand all the gibberish that may be... The intricacies. Sure. <laughs> that may be going on in the next couple minutes. Basically what a stall is, is when an aircraft loses, and we kind of went over it, it loses lift on the wings, which what causes the airplane to fly... So the reason this happens is because of the shape of the wing. It's called an airfoil. It has a very particular shape that makes it so when air is hitting the wing, it goes faster over the top and has a lower pressure and slower on the bottom and a higher pressure, which creates lift. Yeah, but if something, if you're going too slow or... Um, or if your angle of attack ang- is too high. Yeah, if you're... If you're at a weird angle, you lose lift on the wings because of the way the wings are made. So then what you should do is push the nose of the plane down to gain airspeed to regain lift. If you're in an aerodynamic stall, yes. There's, yes. There's another stall called a an accelerated stall, but we won't get into that one because that does not apply here. And we have a diagram of this on our website along with the following graph that I'm showing everyone. It is what lift looks like as you change the angle of attack. And as you can see in this graph, you lose lift quicker with a steeper angle of attack if you have ice on the wing. So the ice affects... Well, that makes sense because the ice affects the wing itself, Mm -hmm. what the wing looks like. 
Yeah, and so in the lift curve that you're seeing here, um, the stall occurs at the peak of that curve. So you can see that the peak of a clean airfoil is significantly higher than an airfoil with ice on it. Right. So the angle of attack, so the nose being up, can be a lot higher at the same speed if the airfoil is clean versus if it has ice. If it's at ice, then the airplane is only able to pitch up so much mm -hmm. before it starts losing lift. Yep. So and how, sorry, how did the pilots know when that occurs? So that's part of what was just done, that lever that was moved that adjusts everything by 15 knots. So that helps with the speed aspect. And then, and so as you pull up, when you have ice on your wing, you stall significantly quicker than you would otherwise. How do the pilots know where their stall, where they would stall? Like, how do they know... What oh, angle? I can't, yeah, I can't go up anymore because I'm going to end up being in a stall. So most airplanes are pretty smart these days. Um, there's a few indications uh, physically from the airplane, but also the, uh, the little velocimeter they had, what with the slow speed indicator that comes up. It actually, in most airplanes and most modern airliners, will adjust based on their angle of attack as the angle of attack increases that low speed will actually come up with their angle of attack to tell them that they're getting too close to their, their stall. stall. And so there's actually a visual indication on there, on their airspeed, that will tell them that, hey, there's not enough air being going over. And what's feeding that information is the pitot tube. The pitot tube is sucking in air, and the amount of air that comes into that pitot tube is what, is what tells the instruments how fast the airplane is moving. If the air isn't going into the, the pitot tube very quickly, then it knows that it's getting close to a stall because it knows where the, the actual relative speed is of the wing. So there are two things that I can think of that would make the pilots not know. One, they weren't paying attention to their instruments, which, again, we were talking about they weren't in a sterile cockpit, so that would make sense to me. But two, there, have been, there has been a case where the pitot tube or... Is that right, pitot tube? Pitot. P-I-T-O-T. Pitot. The pitot tube ices over, and so the plane doesn't know what the airspeed is. Which wasn't the case, because they had their pitot tube warmers on. Yep. The pitot tube was not frozen. So it was them not looking at their instruments. Eh, there's a little bit more to it. Okay. So the first officer didn't enter icing conditions when sending the landing information to ACARS. So when the aerodata landing data came back, um, it showed a reference landing speed of 118 knots and a go-around speed of 114, which is not appropriate for icing conditions because they didn't know that it was icing. So basically, the first officer sends a bunch of data, and they send back what speeds they should be going. But if they didn't know it was icing, oh. they didn't adjust for it. So when they moved that the low-speed indicator up 15 knots they were getting landing speeds that were lower than that, which is why the stick shaker activated. Oh, so basically it's because she decided not to tell them they were entering icing conditions. Yeah, she didn't and put so it into the computer. she moved... She was prepared for adjusting. icing conditions, yeah. but they didn't know it. So if it, was, if it was icing conditions, they should have given her faster landing speeds. So they were trying to go slower than what they were supposed to be going. Yes. Got it. One of the aspects of the inv investigation was looking at why 
the flight crew failed to detect the impending stick shaker. The captain should have noticed the rising low-speed cue between the 18 seconds of its rising and the stick shaker activating, but it's not possible to determine from the CVR what he was doing in those 18 seconds. First officer, however, should have detected this um, as his backup, which was, and she was focused on other instruments on the panel, including the landing gear, changing the radio frequency for ATC, and the flaps. The NTSB couldn't conclude the reason for the captain missing the cue, but the first officer should have, and her other tasks contributed to her missing it. The flight crew also didn't consider the effect of the switch that they had turned to raise the low-speed cue by 15 knots, because they didn't talk about it at all once the stick shaker activated, they, and they didn't say anything about it the whole flight. They just followed the procedure and turned it on to increase. Colgan procedure once the stick shaker activated for stall recovery should have been as follows. The pilot flying, in this case the captain, should have called stall out loud, increased power to full, and then called check power. He didn't do any of this. The first officer should have called stall when the captain failed to do so, but didn't. She also should have told the captain that power wasn't at full, but didn't. And she should have pushed power to full when the captain failed to do so, but didn't. So, maybe this was too small of an aircraft to have this, but isn't there a stall warning? It's the stick shaker. It's the stick shaker. The stick shaker is super violent. It's very loud. But aren't there some aircraft, and maybe this is just bigger aircraft that have it, but aren't there aircrafts that have a thing that says stall, 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 pull up? It's typically goes... Or or push down or whatever. Yeah, so it typically goes hand in hand with the stick shaker. However, uh, a lot of airplanes do have now basically premature warnings for a stall. So they, if your speed gets too close to that low speed warning or the stall speed then it will start warning you ahead of time so that you might be able to do something about it beforehand. This airplane was not equipped with that. And so basically by the first officer not doing everything I just said, it shows a deviation from the procedure already. The following steps where the pilot monitoring was to call a positive rate as an indication that the plane was climbing. And then the captain should have said, gear up. The first officer should have then raised the gear and called VFRI, or Flap Retract Speed, when the airspeed had accelerated to 125 knots, and then the pilot flying should have called Flaps Zero. This did not happen in this order. The first officer raised the gear without being prompted, which shouldn't have happened unless the captain requested it. Seven seconds later, she asked to raise the gear, and the captain consented. This was a total breakdown of procedure. The biggest thing that caused them to lose control was when she had moved the flaps to zero. As we have discussed in a previous episode, flaps increases the surface area of the wing and allows you to fly at slower speeds. By bringing the flaps back to zero degrees, she decreased the surface area of the wing, and that's when they lost control. That's when they stalled. So the airplane was not actually in a stall when the stick shaker occurred. So that was just... I'm assuming the precursor to the stall to let them know they are heading into a stall. It gives you like a seven to eight knot warning. Right, essentially. And then the problem with this was that the by not following the procedures, the captain and first officer did the wrong things and put themselves into a stall they weren't in. And sh- flaps shouldn't have been raised until they were at 125 knots. And as you could see in that simulation, they were at like 100. 
there's no reason the flap should have been raised back to zero degrees. That's when they lost control because they did not have enough speed to lift the flap or to retract the flaps. So basically what you're telling me is they didn't know enough about what they were doing. Basically. To save themselves from crashing. Mm -hmm. Correct. Well, and then you said that the stick pusher, the one that pushes the stick down. Yes. That engages when you're in a stall so that you can get out of the stall. It engages when you're in a stall and when the airplane is at wings level. Okay. So did they counteract it by pulling back? Three separate times the captain pulled back against the stick pusher. Yep. So in turn causing them to all die. Yes. Because if they had, you, I think you said, and maybe you'll probably get into this later, I'm sorry. But if they had done that the first time, they would have had time to recover, yeah? Correct. Okay. All of this shows that they weren't responding to a well-learned habit or procedure. And the NCSB concluded that the captain's response to the stick shaker should have been completely automatic. But his flight control inputs were inconsistent with his training, and he seemed more startled and confused than anything, which is not what you want when you have a pilot flying. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So now we get into the findings that were called out on the NTSB report, what the actual findings were. There were 46 findings on the report. Of those, I have pulled 22 of the more important ones, or ones that are actually more relevant for the safety and what actually happened in this incident. Goodness gracious. The captain's aft movement and the flight control caused the wings to stall, so it was the captain's input that actually caused the airplane to stall. Minimal aircraft performance degradation resulting from ice did not prevent the pilots from controlling the airplane. That means that the ice that was occurring on the airplane was not enough to stall the airplane. It didn't have any real effect on the airplane flying. Everything was going as it should with that airplane. There were many indications of the impending stick shaker that were not noticed by the flight crew. Like we said earlier, this was called out as a finding. It was unknown why the pilot did not notice, but the co-pilot was performing too many tasks to notice the indication on the altimeter. This meant that the pilot in charge wasn't doing proper crew resource management. Holy crap. (laughs) I feel like every episode we've covered has done something with crew resource management. That's only because it's extremely important. (laughs) Except for UA-232, because he had good... He had unbelievable crew resource management in a very tough situation. The flight crew did not consider the position of the reference speed switch when the stick shaker activated, so they were very reactionary rather than thoughtful. The captain's response to the stick shaker should have been automatic, but was instead counter to training procedures. The first officer retracting flaps and suggesting to retract the gear was not part of training procedures, not in that order. And it's unknown why she did that in the order and the way she did. The captain's failure to manage the flight both enabled conversations that delayed the checklist and broke sterile cockpit procedures, and created an environment that impeded timely error prevention, so it just kept them from doing their job, basically. Colgan standard operating procedures did not promote effective monitoring behaviors. 
neither pilot demonstrated proper crew resource management from the training that they had received. Pilots were likely fatigued, but the extent of their impairment from this was not known. They did not properly manage their off-duty time to receive proper rest, either one of them. And Colgan Air did not properly address fatigue issues in their pilots that had been known. First officer's illness likely did not contribute to this incident, so her sickness really had nothing to do with this. They say, basically the way they word it actually puts it meaning it likely didn't have any further implications in what was happening. The fatigue was enough. Yeah, I th- as far as I read, I think she was like just sniffling for the most part. Yeah, it was a very like newly onset cold. It was basically her family as well as crew that had been with her earlier in the day and seen her earlier in the day said she didn't appear sick or say anything about it. It wasn't until just before this flight that she seemed to mention that she had a head cold to this captain. Of course. Yep. Captain did not have a good foundation for attitude instrument flying skills in his early career, and the issue was never addressed. He failed quite a few check rights, quite a few tests, actually, early in his career. And while that's not uncommon, and it's also not indicative of being a bad pilot or a bad you know, being bad at your job or anything, it does mean it it was obvious in this flight that he didn't know how to handle the airplane. He didn't know to just how to just fly the airplane when it was in a bad situation. So did he not have additional training for his failed courses? He did. He retook him and eventually he passed. And so obviously with a lot of reinforcement he got there. But But did he? But obviously he wasn't pulling up that information in his brain, partially because of fatigue, but also because he wasn't accustomed to just flying the airplane anymore. The autopilot took over the part of him that wasn't very good at it anyways. So he was overly reliant on autopilot through his career. His procedures just kept the same. Nothing was out of the norm, and when something was out of the norm, he wasn't very confident in the way and how to react, unfortunately. Both of them were relatively new pilots, so understandably so, to be honest. Colganair's procedures did not require a cross-check of stall speed of the stall speed bug with the reference speeds, which can falsely cause an early stall warning in this which case. Which is exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Training did not prepare the crew for the stall or, recover, or recovery from a fully developed stall. So they didn't have enough training to know how to get out of this stall on the Q400 specifically. More training... It is needed for the function of the stick pusher in the event of a stall, they found, as he reacted improperly to the stick pusher. He didn't understand that it was the stick pusher that was trying to take over, and that's what he was fighting against. That's why it went down. I feel like it would be really hard to do that, too, because the it whole is. point of that is to help the plane recover from a stall, and trying to pull back from the plane, trying to pull itself down... It's presumed that the grunting that's heard over the CVR is him pulling against the stick, sh- the pusher, the stick pusher, as well as, of course, fighting the forces of nature, which on an actual control service, if you ever hold a real one in an airplane, it is tough. They are hard. I mean, it's like trying to pull a brick wall down sometimes. And finally, I found this one interesting. Distractions from personal portable devices can cause loss of situational awareness. So I read into this more in the report. The pilot, the co- I should say, the captain 
was making phone calls before and at the beginning of their flight. He was, that while they were on a ground hold. What? Yes. While they were on a ground hold for almost 45 minutes waiting to take off, he made a phone call at one point. When he's supposed to have a sterile cockpit? Correct. And it's believed that this is what set the precedent for an unsterile cockpit for the rest of the flight. Oh my goodness. Right. Okay. So to wrap everything up, so I, I, I got it all figured out, right? Okay. Part of the issue was they moved the lever that changed the, what was it? The low speed cue? Yeah, 15 knots, right? When there wasn't proper icing conditions to do that. And because they didn't get proper information to the weather center. Yeah, basically. On what speeds they need to go to land, they were going too slow. But for the system, for the system. So the to be fair, for those of you out there, because this took me a while to understand too, they weren't close to a stall when the stick shaker engaged. Correct? They were like twenty knots away from it. Yep. Yeah, and the stick shaker's supposed to come on when it's like what eight or nine knots away. I, I looked. At, it's five to seven knots. Oh, five to seven knots. So five to seven knots. So really, they weren't there yet. Mm -mm. However, if they'd done proper procedure. When the stick shaker turned on, they could have recovered. They could have recovered. So that was one, right? The co-pilot turned the flaps to zero, which caused the plane to actually get into a stall. It increased the stall speed. Yeah. Right. So that's what caused them to move into a stall. And then when the plane tried to correct itself by pushing itself down, the captain kept trying to pull it up. Correct. And so it caused... There was just no time after he did that. Right. And anybody, any aviator that's seen what an airplane or felt what an airplane does when it does hit that stall, where one wing will typically stall before the other and dip left or right, that's what you'll see if you watch the, the video that we'll have on our website. It's the, when he pulls back on the stick, you see that stall happen where one wing starts to suddenly go over, then the nose starts to dip. He corrects as soon as it's got enough airspeed it goes back the other way continues to pull back again it does the same thing it's a constant it's like an oscillation in a way of its own but it's very uncontrolled and it's very difficult to get out of especially at that low of an altitude and if he would have gone with what the airplane wanted to do the first time and went with the stick pusher and went down they right. could have recovered and landed they could have recovered gone around figured out what was wrong with their reference speeds, corrected the problem, and landed properly. The National Transportation Safety Board determined that the probable cause of this accident was the captain's inappropriate response to the activation of the stick shaker, which led to an aerodynamic stall from which the airplane did not recover. Contributing to the accident were the flight crew's failure to monitor airspeed in relation to the rising position of the low-speed queue, the flight crew's failure to adhere to sterile cockpit procedures, the captain's failure to effectively manage the flight, and Colgan Air's inadequate procedures for airspeed selection and management during approaches and icing conditions. So basically summed up, that means the entire incident was blamed on pilot error and company error, operator's mistake. It had nothing to do with the airplane itself. The airplane was operating completely functionally. So, real quick, was it, and I know we kind of talked about the captain not really understanding what he was doing, right? But 
was that on the part of Colgan Air for not giving him enough time to have training and not having enough training when this happens? Yes, that is a big part of it. It's believed there wasn't enough training at Colgan Air for them to deal with the situation they were in. And part of it is Colgan Air had rapidly grown as a company. So they hired a ton of new pilots. And they weren't prepared for that amount of new people. So they just didn't have the training available for them to have that. So then, if that's the case, why are these pilots flying in these conditions when they don't know what to do? That's the problem. That's what came of this report and the recommendations that the NTSB gave to the FAA, as well as to Colgan Air. I'll get into those. There was also a lot of recommendations, and a lot of them were very dry. Um, some of them go back on, on old recommendations and recommendation, furthering recommendations or changing and adjusting things uh, that already existed. However, some of the ones I found interesting were to adjust or make redundant visual and oral warnings to be more clear and premature of an impending low-speed situation. So this included their low-speed cue was only basically a line on their indicator as it was. It was a little red line. There wasn't much more to tell them. On most modern airplanes, there's a line followed by a set of dashed red and black lines all the way the rest of the way down I the I thought tape. that's what it was. That's what it is now. It also didn't come up red, and they recommended to them that they add the tape. Didn't they also add a yellow cautionary band above the low-speed queue before the red and black? Yes, they did. And the numbers changed from white to yellow? Yes, they did. Correct. So you get a warning before the warning. Right. That way there's a lot more heads up before something bad actually happens. Further development and distribution of info about pilot professionalism. So in other words... Just being professional when you're around the other crews, being professional when you're in the cockpit, and when you're handling the flight. Don't go out of your way to be unprofessional. Don't lose sight of what you're doing. Don't lose sight of operating a fast metal bird. Like, this isn't chit-chat hour. You're working. Right. You're getting paid. You can have a certain amount of conversation with your, when you're in cruise flight, but don't... Above 10,000 feet. But don't do it during sterile cockpit, or even avoid putting yourself in that headspace before you even get in the airplane or leave the ground. So it's kind of like, if you work in an office like I used to do, you could do... So I'm a college student, right? You could do homework on downtime, but you always do work first, and then you do homework. So you're always in the mindset of this is my job. This is what I have to do to work. It's and what you're then, getting paid for. Yeah. And then, oh, I have some off time. We're in cruise flight. We can have a small conversation. They want to update the path. They, or they recommended updating the path to captain to include more leadership training because they found that he wasn't doing enough management or crew resource management in this case. So he wasn't handling it with leadership in a bad situation. Requirements for operators to better manage crew fatigue to include communicating and mitigating risk. So before this flight, there were both of the crew were very fatigued for different reasons. The first officer's day had started very early on the other end of the country, and she had spent a very long day not managing her rest well. 
then she was sick and she wasn't managing this all very well. The pilot had actually slept in the crew room the night before and then offered to do jobs around the office all day, so he didn't manage his rest very well either. And it was assumed that both of them were very fatigued by the time they actually took control of this airplane. They recommended improving the operator's pilot training records upkeep. So in other words, at the operator, or Colgan Air, all of the pilot's records are kept on hand. All of their training, all of their necessary ratings, all of their necessary check flights, um, in order to make sure that they are properly trained for flights and for each one of the operations they're actually performing as a 121 pilot. 121 is commercial airlines such as major airlines like United, American, so on and so forth. Colgan Air. Anything that operates a scheduled passenger or cargo service. Better training to on fully developed stalls was recommended to prevent this happening again because they found that the crew really wasn't well enough prepared for a fully developed stall. Yeah, it needs to be instinct what to do. Right. Big time. Yeah, it. If when you watch the video, they didn't have a lot of time to recover. You don't have time to think about procedures or checklists. You just need to act and you know how to act properly. And yeah. the thing is, too, is like you learn stall training from very early on. When I was doing my early private pilot training... That's a big part of it, is learning how to get yourself out of stalls. And it's not that they're not necessarily trained to get themselves out of stalls automatically, but when you start talking about handling a plane that handles so much faster and heavier, it behaves differently than you get used to in a small airplane when you actually perform stalls. You need training in those big machines, too, to know what that specific airplane is going to feel like, look like, do, because it's so much more involved than it even is in a small airplane, and the speeds are so much faster, so 27 seconds from the point of stick shaker to crash is really fast, and it's very unfortunate, but there are ways to get out of it, and 27 seconds was enough time for them to recover if they had done it properly. And would they do the training for the bigger aircrafts in simulators or in the actual planes? It would be in simulators, absolutely. They wouldn't put a real airplane through that. That's expensive expensive and potentially deadly <laughs> and you want to be able to mess up and know what messing up feels like so you don't do it so they just needed more time in the simulator correct and ground time they need to discuss it more explicit guidance from operators to flight crews about the use of personal electronic devices was recommended so in other words literally just the operator being very explicit about don't use it in the cockpit ever yeah, having it in their rules and regulations of being an employee for the actual company. Right. Like, you can't have your phone on in the cockpit. Right. It's unfortunate, like, you think, oh, well, treat me like a kid, why don't you? But obviously, if a situation like this happens, they have to do something about it so that it doesn't happen again. What do pilots do for eight hours on a super long flight? <laughs> have discussions. There's enough going on with the airplane, usually you'd be surprised. You're pretty involved with the airplane still all the time. You're usually getting air traffic control information still. You're reading information from operations about potential weather. You're getting pilot reports from other aircraft. I mean, you know, long flights aren't 
entirely boring, you still have to make sure that you're aware of the airplane at all times. So little conversations interspersed with that isn't a big deal above 10,000 feet because by that point your workload is a lot smaller at cruise, but it's not gone. You still have to do things the whole time. You're also usually preparing for your landing far before you ever even do your descent. Because once you're into descent, you need to be worrying about things like flaps, speeds, gear, all of these things, flying the actual airplane, instead of worrying about what's your actual approach going to look like, setting up for the approach, doing the landing. You know, you need to make sure all of that's in your head before you even get to that point. So there's a lot to do during cruise flight, and they weren't in the headspace for that this time. They recommended an update of icing definitions for pilot reporting to be more specific and critical. So when pilots make a report of there's moderate or light icing, be more specific about what kind of icing it is. They updated their definitions so that it's a lot more clear that way. And a lot more universal. And a lot more universal. That way pilots from each level, any level, can report it. Because there were so many pilots that were flying in the area at the time that didn't report any icing that did have it. And their reports were varied. I mean, the, the pilots that found two to three inches of ice on their spinner said moderate, but airplanes that were having to constantly break it up said it was light. And it was all about the same situation they were in. So it was very unclear what was actually happening with icing at the time. Even the Colgan Air Flight reported light to moderate icing, and they didn't really consider it a problem. And then they also recommended massive upgrades to crew training at the entry level for 121 jobs for crews including strict increase in flight hour requirements to a 1500 hour minimum to be an ATP rated or airline transport pilot. So in order to be a pilot for an airline, whether it be passenger or cargo, you're now at an entry level into the regional carriers generally required to have 1500 hours. And prior to this, it was both lower and not as critical. They were able to hire almost anybody at as long as they seemed like they had enough experience. Now, that's not entirely true. There were still were hour minimums per company, but now it's a strict 1,500 minimum for the FAA. That's what I was going to ask, because I think there was a crash documentary that referenced this crash. So I knew, I didn't know how the plane crashed. I just kind of knew a little bit about it. I knew it was Colgan Air operating as Continental Express. And the episode I watched talked about how Colgan Air got away with hiring pilots that had a lot less hours than a lot of the actual, like, Continental pilots had to have a lot more hours than Colgan Air pilots. Right. And even now, the major airlines have to have more hours than the regional airlines. So, like, if you go into a regional airline like SkyWest or Colgan Air today, at 1,500 hours, you wouldn't be able to be hired for mainline United or American or Delta or any of those because they require a lot more minimum hours just to be on their 737s, A320s, whatever it is. Their hours are a lot higher, more like 3,000 hour minimum, 3,500 hour minimum versus the, the entry level, the commuter airlines, which are willing to do most of the big jet training on smaller jets starting at 1,500 hours. And that's how a lot of pilots get the hours to get to the big airlines. Right. You go into a commuter airline, build up the hours, and then end up in 
one of the major airlines. There's usually now tracks to get from one to the other. That was Continental Express 3407 or Colgan Air 3407. Right. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a great week. See you next next week. week. Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.